Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. We're back with a solo episode this week. I hope everyone enjoyed last week when I had Dave Giuliani, the Director of Research and Strategy for our Cleveland Browns. Uh, We had an interview there. For those who hadn't checked it out, go ahead and rewind back a week and see that. Got some pretty good response. I knew that Dave would be a great guest for a couple of different reasons. I mean, number one, extremely knowledgeable. He's been with the organization for quite a few years now. He had exposure also working for the Eagles and the 49ers before that. And also I knew he's someone who can articulate himself pretty well and talk well. And he also, you know, gave us a pretty funny story about legendary wide receiver coach Al Saunders uh, trolling the Browns running game uh, crew and coaches who were trying to figure things out, uh, trolling them about how they're how they're trying to figure out how to get three yards on a down for there. So I appreciated all that. Thanks again to Dave for for coming on here this week. We actually have a lot to talk about, surprisingly, because you know there's not not much going on in the NFL right now. But there are a couple of topical things that happened that I wanted to touch on. Um, well, first I wanted to update some of the analysis I did two weeks prior on quarterback rankings and the fact that I incorporated and published an article on that where I incorporated rushing into it. So not only grading for rushing, but then also, uh, for the efficiency metric EPA per play, some of the controversial rankings based upon that. And I'm really going to focus on Josh Allen because obviously that's the place I'm getting the most pushback in particular for the fact that he fell he fell in at 11th. So he's right outside of the top 10. And that was getting published and pumped out there on social media by, uh, by PFF, the top 10 rankings. And then boom, you know, Allen wasn't on there. And so I'll give you how I would make some adjustments for that and specifically look at him versus uh, Justin Herbert too. Cause I think that was one that some people pushed back on the fact that Herbert was up at seventh. Um, so, so we'll talk about that. We'll do a little bit of analysis. And this is on the topical side for those who didn't see last week, one of the bigger, at least hourly news items, I mean, things don't last much longer than that, it seems like nowadays, was the fact that uh, Chicago Bears head coach Matt Nagy was on the Chris Collinsworth podcast, the PFF podcast for Chris Collinsworth. And he said that, at least initially, it was a little bit hedged, though, and we'll talk about it, um, that Justin Fields is not going to play week one. It's going to be Andy Dalton under all circumstances. So I crunch a bunch of numbers on rookie quarterbacks and when they play, when they don't play, why they might not play, what it says about who they are, if they're not playing, uh, a lot of those different details. So that we'll do that. I'm going to do a quick segment on breakout wide receiver, different analysis there, uh, looking at second year wide receivers. And I'll wrap that into talking about uh, underdog, which we have a promo code for that, that I'll let you guys know about. And then a couple of last things here. One, uh, I have some numbers on situational aggression and how that's changing the NFL. This came up based upon a podcast that I was listening to with our own uh, Deontay Lee, who works here at PFF now doing great work on defensive stuff and how they're forcing offenses to be a little bit more aggressive than maybe they've been in the past. So I have some numbers on that. And the last two things I'm going to talk about, one, a a new segment called Back to School, where I'm going to talk about some uh, statistical or stat uh, knowledge that you can apply to to football. And then I have a quick little thing at the end, try to be quick as possible on this one on a stick to sports segment. So first let's jump right into the QB rankings update. So for those who didn't see that, there's an article that came out on PFF. Let me just go ahead and bring it up here because like I mentioned, there's a little bit of pushback. And 
Josh Allen being the, the culprit here. So uh, let me, for those who remember when I talked about this, a lot of the rankings didn't change when I talked about a couple of weeks ago, but Allen was down at 11th. So here's some context that maybe doesn't come through on Allen. Now, if I was, first of all, if I was actually ranking quarterbacks, I would have Allen above Baker Mayfield, who was before, who was ahead of him, uh, maybe above Herbert. And I'll talk about that a little bit with Herbert going down. Uh, I'm not sure I'd have him above Prescott or Matt Ryan or some of these others that many people would have him above, but definitely those two, I think. But this was an analysis that wasn't my personal rankings. This was an analysis that's sticking to a strict methodology, which is explained in detail in the analysis, in the article. And then, you know, and I, I write some words around the fact of why things are a bit off. Now for Alan, the biggest thing is, and I'm going to compare this directly to Herbert. The biggest thing is, what would you rather have in a quarterback when you're looking at them? Would you rather have one, I would say, bad season where he, you know, if we go back to 2018, his rookie season, he was 25th in EPA per play. And then in 2019, he was 21st in EPA per play. And those were years where he was doing, adding value on the ground, right? And he still wasn't getting close really to the top half of the league in those two years. And then he had one elite year in 2020 where he was at fourth. Now, even fourth sounds a little bit low for him behind Ryan Tannehill and Rogers and Patrick Mahomes. But the reason he's lower, and this is something again, that comes through in the numbers, but may not be perfect for the analysis and definitely doesn't come through in people's heads is the fact that believe it or not, Josh Allen had negative rushing EPA. And when rushing, I'm, I'm, putting that specifically to designed runs, not scrambles. So he had plus eight EPA over his first two seasons on designed runs. Again, he was, he had some fumble issues in those years too. So he, that really mitigates the positive impact that you're getting on runs because fumbles and turning over the ball is so costly, especially on running plays that don't have the type of high upside where we're talking about 40, 50 yard plays aren't going to happen very often unless you're Lamar Jackson. And then in 2020, Allen, who had four fumbles on design runs, four, he had negative 8.7 EPA on design runs. So that really hurt his number, his, his projection. The fact that not only was he not getting credit for his rushing ability, he was getting as a negative in 2020. So I think that also lends into why he didn't get a bigger boost in 2020 versus some other guys. And people were comparing him specifically to Lamar Jackson. So here's another point of context that I'm going to put into our EPA numbers. So our EPA numbers, they have a, it's a fixed effects model where the year is a fixed effect in there and it's going to adjust in 2020. You know, we saw an explosion of offense, at least, initially to start the season. So numbers were up across the board. Penalties were down. And because of that, some of the EPA numbers are even for the equivalent performance are going to be discounted a bit more in our model as we try to adjust for the year by year changes. So Lamar Jackson, number one, according to, according to our adjusted model, and this deals with those year by year changes where there wasn't a lot of fantastic play in 2019. Um, Jackson his EPA per play was 0.34 versus Allen's EPA per play last year was only 0.2. So significantly higher for Jackson, 0.34 versus 0.2. And then 
if you think about that, that really gives you a good idea of why Allen maybe didn't have the big jump and why Lamar Jackson was so, so high in our rankings. And then to hit on Herbert really quickly, that's probably one of the more controversial ones that he was seventh. I think there's one part that's not part of the analysis and maybe I can bring it into the analysis, but I don't want to muddy things up too much. And that is pressure performance versus clean pocket performance. Uh, I mentioned this in the write-up that there's tons of literature out there, especially, you know, the work that PFF has done and Eric Eager has done where showing that pressure EPA is much less stable than from a clean pocket. Now that's grading, that's expected points added per play, however you want to, to put that in. And I would say the reason for that is, and I'll use for an analogy, um, Tolstoy here. I know we're getting a little bit uh, a highbrow here, but Tolstoy said that, I believe the quote is, I'm paraphrasing here, but all happy families are the same. Uh, all unhappy families are unhappy for different reasons. And I think it's the same when we're talking about clean pocket versus pressure. All, it's it's kind of like all clean pockets are the same or very similar as far as the situation for the quarterback. It's a quarterback going back to pass. There is no pressure, can deliver the ball somewhere. Now, of course, sometimes the quarterback is getting the ball away quicker than others. Sometimes it's a quick pass. Sometimes it's a long pass. Sometimes they have four seconds with no pressure. Sometimes they have two seconds with no pressure. I get that. But generally, the situation as the ball is leaving the quarterback's hand is the same. No pressure. Now, when a quarterback is under pressure, that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean they have one guy draped on their leg, another guy about to hit them. They can't step into the throw and they're trying their, their best to get it off at the last second. Or that can mean they're just being flushed from the pocket and running and throwing the ball where they're relatively unperturbed, but we would consider that a pressure because they're being moved off of their spot. So because of that, the pressure performance is not going to be as consistent year over year because pressure differs greatly depending upon when that happens. And also pressure is normally associated with blitzing, right? And blitzing leaves open more the back end of the defense, which means there's a bigger chance for guys getting open down the field and accumulating big plays on air yards. And there's also a bigger chance for a broken tackle leading to tons of yak and a long play there. So you have the, the chance to get these bigger chunk plays based upon just a little differences. And the last thing, of course, is, you know, the fewer pressure plays than there are clean pocket plays. So it's just a, a lower sample. So wrapping this all into the analysis, Justin Herbert, he was first in the NFL in pressure EPA. And if you look at his clean pocket EPA per drop back, drops all the way down to 26th. So he was under pressure a ton last year. And that's one of the things they want to clean up. But because that clean pocket EPA is more stable, that's a little bit concerning for Herbert because the best quarterbacks in the league are the ones who can do it under pressure because that is the added element that you really need to differentiate. Um, it's kind of, it's similar to, I would say in the NBA in the playoffs when you need a player just to you know, get you a bucket. I've heard some people use this same analogy. And I think that's true for a quarterback. When you need a quarterback to get you a first down, certain quarterbacks can do that no matter what the situation is. Others, if things don't fall into place, they're a little bit lost. So Herbert showing that skill is great because if you look at the top quarterbacks in EPA per drop back, when we're looking on a, on a pressure basis, I'll give you to, to you from, from last year. Um, so pressure EPA, the top guys. 
Number one, Justin Herbert. Number two, Josh Allen. We talked about he was fantastic under pressure also. That was a big improvement for him. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers. And those are the top guys. So those are kind of like the top quarterbacks, right? Um, but the, the key is, like I mentioned, for clean EPA, while Herbert drops all the way down to 26, if you look at the top quarterbacks in clean EPA, you have Ryan Tannehill, number one. I think that's multiple years of him being at the top from a clean pocket. Then you have Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes again. So they, they show up again, those same quarterbacks. You have Allen down at, uh, let me see, sixth. So again, he's near the top. So when you're doing both of those things, it's a lot better and a lot more confident for that performance. And that's why if I was going to make an adjustment after the fact, not change the whole methodology of the analysis to get Allen up into, you know, eighth or seventh place. But if I was going to make an adjustment in my head afterwards, I would say Allen does belong up there more than someone like Herbert, more than someone like Baker Mayfield who's really relying on his grading as opposed to his EPA. Um, I would just be more confident in, in Allen in both of those, both of those categories. So Bill's fans are yelling at me, you know, yell away. I, I think you, uh, I don't take it any of it personally. Um, I'm hoping that this analysis will help clarify that for anyone who had, who had an issue with it, but otherwise, you know, we'll continue to update as the season goes on. And I still think when it comes to Allen, you know, the biggest factor is the fact we have 1200 dropbacks those first two years where he wasn't that good. And then we have 800 and something or plays, I should say 800 and something, in 2020 where he was excellent how do you put all that together versus someone like herbert who has one good but not excellent year which one would you rather have one season of great play two seasons of bad play and one season of excellent excellent play you know maybe Allen is at a new plateau maybe he's not we will see going forward in this season okay let's turn over to rookies and when are they going to start? When are they not going to start? I mentioned in the intro, Chris Collinsworth podcast, Matt Nagy had a quote on there when Collinsworth asked him what was going to happen. Is there any scenario? Because he says, okay, well, let me back up a little bit. So he says the plan is to start um, Andy Dalton week one, right? So... I'll give you the the exact quote here. So it says, is there a possible scenario where Justin Fields plays on opening night? That's the question from Collinsworth. Nagy's uh, answer was no. So he does say no. I think that's what people, and then people ran with that as far as putting the information out there. He says, no, I mean, Andy is our starter. Again, I can't predict anything. So a little bit of hedging there. You know how it goes. There's so many things that can happen between today and week one, but Andy is our starter and Justin's our number two, and we're going to stick to this plan. We always hope that nothing happens to Andy in terms of injuries or anything like that. And that's why I can't say hundred percent because we don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully everything is good there. And he goes on and on. And he basically says, we're going to do what was in the plan. We're going to do what's best for Justin as the backup and what's best for the team. So I, I would say that he was pretty strong on saying we're going to stick to this plan outside of an extraordinary event like an injury and that's probably a little bit too solid to to have uh there but he wasn't as closed off to the possibility of Justin Fields starting week one or starting early than some may think so what I want to talk about is some numbers I was crunching and maybe some philosophy and expectations around rookie quarterbacks I think that this year in particular, outside of the top two picks, now the top two picks when you have um, 
when you have the Jaguars getting Trevor Lawrence and then you have the Jets with Zach Wilson, they don't have credible other potential starters on those teams. So it makes sense that they would be starting week one. Very likely they'll be starting week one. Now for the other three teams, I mean, I would say this crop of veteran quarterbacks is not so bad comparison to previous years. And I have the, some of the, some of the data on that. We're talking about Andy Dalton. Okay. So Andy Dalton, again, if you, if you look at my, my list of the analytical rankings, which excluded rookie quarterbacks, Dalton was at 24th. He was above Carson Wentz, above Tua, above Teddy Bridgewater, above Daniel Jones, above Sam Darnold, above Drew Locke, above a lot of these guys here. So he's, you know, he's not horrible, right? And he is in front of Justin Fields. So, and then if we go to San Francisco, and this is going to be, this is a shocking thing from the rankings that Jimmy Garoppolo was 12th in the rankings. Now he's heavily dependent upon his EPA efficiency. And a lot of that is based on yards after the catch or stuff you could say is schemed open because he was eighth in EPA ranking projection, but 19th in grade projection. So we have accounted for the fact that he's in this easier scheme, but when healthy, this is a team, I believe under Jimmy Garoppolo, they're 24 and eight when he's been healthy. This is a team that has been very strong, went to the Super Bowl, and maybe Garoppolo is a little bit undervalued for that point. And I know that Trey Lance is thought by some to be NFL ready. I think Shanahan said that he is an NFL ready quarterback. So anything's possible for him starting week one. But as of now, it looks like Garoppolo is going to be retained. So it would not surprise me if he started week one and they have a really easy schedule. So I don't think this is going to be an Alex Smith 2017 situation, but it has some potential to be that. So Garoppolo's there. And then we have in New England, Cam Newton. So Cam is 20th in the rankings here. So slightly ahead of guys like Derek Carr, uh, Jared Goff, and also ahead of Dalton, who we mentioned earlier. So these are not, you know, the bottom barrel quarterbacks in the league. In fact, if you look at the last six quarterbacks in my rankings here, uh, they, well, there's five different teams because I have Locke and Bridgewater, both from the Broncos on here. But if you think, if you look at the six bottom quarterbacks, they are from the Dolphins, the Broncos, the Giants, the Eagles, and the Panthers. These are all teams who had the chance to take either Justin Fields or Mac Jones. They all had that possibility. They all chose not to do it. So I think that's interesting that some of the teams with the worst projected quarterback play, at least according to my numbers, decided not to take a shot on those guys. And the names that I mentioned earlier, like Dalton, uh, Cam Newton, and Jimmy Garoppolo are actually not as bad, yet those teams decided to make a move. I think it all depends upon where the team is in its cycle as far as the players around them really wanting to take a shot, especially in the case of the of the 49ers. So, that, so that's the first thing, is that there is some possibility that there's some good quarterback play ahead of these guys. But when I look through the numbers, and I'm just looking at PFF data here from 20, 2006 to 2020, and I'm looking at first-round quarterbacks, how long did it take them to start? So 17 out of the 43 quarterbacks who were picked in the first round started week one. So that's 40%. 
Now, if you adjust that number, maybe I should adjust this number. So if we adjust this number and say, um, let's just go to the top 15 quarterbacks selected because maybe I'll say 16, because that's midway through the first round because Mac Jones was the 15th pick, right? So if I, if I bring those guys up, it looks like 15 out of 34. So again, still fewer than half of the quarterbacks that are selected there. And then if I do a little bit more of a narrow window, let's say... 2010 or 2011 to 2020. So the last 10 years, quarterbacks are starting early and earlier. So I'll narrow that a little bit. Then we have 11 out of 26. So it doesn't really help that much as far as boosting up week one starters. Um, okay, let's let's get rid of some of these parameters again. And I'll go to back to the first round here. And we'll talk about some of this. So who were the quarterbacks who did not start started the last the latest because i think there's a question about what what that tells us initially there was i would say a, a philosophy around the nfl maybe 10 to 5 years ago about i think this drives a lot of the the thinking in coaches now is like we don't want to ruin these guys by putting them in too early and the biggest example of that that people point to is david carr and i'm a little skeptical of this, like you can get ruined sort of thing when it comes to, to David Carr. But if you look at the uh, 2002 NFL draft, you know, he was taken there. Uh, he was number one overall. So people were pretty high on Carr, And the fact that he went to an expansion team, he had some of the biggest sack rates that we've seen in the NFL in the last 25 years there. The thought was maybe he was ruined there. I tend to think when hit rates on quarterbacks are basically coin flips almost all the way up to the number one pick in the NFL draft, that the explanation is probably, you probably should lean towards, maybe he's just not that good, um, is how he was ruined as a, quote unquote, ruined as a rookie, really going to affect how he was playing years and years later when he had a chance to start some games from the New York Giants and others. I mean, maybe, but I don't think it's, I think it's more likely that there's something inherent about his play when he continued to take a lot of sacks later on in his career that has more to do with it than anything else. Um, so Aaron Rodgers does not fall into the sample. He would be a pretty popular guy for, for pointing to that's why you sit someone. He sat for three years. He didn't play until his fourth year. He was drafted in 2005, so he doesn't quite fit into the sample. So in the sample here, starting from 2006, so the last 15 years in the league, the latest first-round quarterback to start was Brady Quinn for the Browns. He started the second, I'm sorry. He started the 10th week of his second season there. He was behind Derek Anderson before that. Not good. If that, if that ends up happening to a rookie quarterback, when you're sitting behind Derek Anderson, while I'm not going to go out of my way to say, Hey, these rookies need to be starting immediately. And that's something that, that, that I've seen in some numbers people have pulled up. They said, Hey, if you don't start immediately, then you're going to be bad. But again, there's a conflating factor in here. And that is good quarterbacks start early, bad quarterbacks don't start as early, um, especially if they don't have good competition. So you can't say they're necessarily related to the two. Um, you can't say being put on the bench hurts your development in some sort of way. I think that's false. I think a quarterback is going to be good when, when he gets in, no matter when it may be. And we just don't want to conflate those two things. And one of the biggest examples of that is Patrick Mahomes. So he's not, he's on the very much on the later end for first round quarterbacks of when they played. Now he, he started week 17 of his rookie season in 2017, 
But remember that even that was a meaningless game for the Chiefs. So he was allowed to start because their playoff position would not be affected there. And the reason that that shouldn't have been viewed that negatively for Mahomes is the fact that Alex Smith played very well that year. Uh, and the team played very well. I think that's an underappreciated factor when people are looking at when a rookie quarterback is going to start is simply what is the win-loss record of the team going to be? Um, we bring up 2017. We'll see that Alex Smith was seven. Oh, shit, I'm looking at the wrong one. Okay, Alex Smith was uh, one, two, three. He was sixth in EPA per play, tied with Ben Roethlisberger. So tied for fifth, really, in EPA per play. So he wasn't going to get replaced. It was a Chiefs team that was going to the playoffs. Like I mentioned, had a, had a game that he didn't even need to win in, in week 17 in order to get into the playoffs. So that explains a lot of why Mahomes is being held back. Now, in retrospect, should they have played Mahomes earlier? I don't know. I think it's easy to say now. Believe it or not, around, I think it was a week 13 of that season, I actually called for Mahomes to be playing. I made that note on Twitter. I got roundly attacked as everyone was pointing out the fact that their defense was so poor and Alex Smith was playing well. And how could you do that? But you know, you just don't have the ceiling with Alex Smith. Right. So I do think that's an important factor for these guys when they're going to play the rookies is to say, is this team good enough to truly compete for a title without the ceiling that you're going to get from a rookie where you just don't know how good they're going to be. Even if you're going to get lower floor play, even if you're going to get lower average play as a rookie, you're probably going to get higher ceiling play than you're going to get for the veteran quarterback. And that alone might be worth it, but coaches are conservative as we know in, in everything that happens there. Um, so back, back to some of the, some of the guys here. So Brady Quinn did not start until his second season. Jake Locker didn't start until week one of his second season. So he sat behind Matt Hasselbeck. And that, again, that was a team that, that played pretty well. They ended up nine and seven. They didn't make the playoffs but they were a pretty good team. They started three and one. They never had a losing record at all during the season. So they were always in the playoff hunt. So there wasn't necessarily a reason to turn it over, but you know, Hasselbeck again, he was okay that year. Um, actually, let me pull up to see how Hasselbeck played in 2010. Cause that would be the year that locker sat uh, 25th in EPA per play. So that's a little bit more discouraging for Locker, the fact that he wasn't able to take over. It wasn't like an Alex Smith 2017 where he was up in the, in the, in the top, tied for fifth overall. Hasselbeck was down to 25th. So again, that's disappointing. So I would always factor that in uh, when you're thinking about quarterbacks and how they're going to play, who the competition is ahead of them. Now, as we continue to move up, like I said, Patrick Mahomes played in week 17. Jamarcus Russell did not play until week 17 bad sign for the number one overall um, player that was a bad team a losing team and Josh McCown was in front of him you know much love to Josh McCown but if you're sitting behind him for an entire season as a number one overall pick that's bad news uh, next is Johnny Manziel who did not start until week 15 and he was behind Brian Hoyer bad sign bad sign Tim Tebow did not start until start until week 15 behind Kyle Orton Kyle Orton sneaky sneaky okay player so I'm not that down on it Jay Cutler didn't start until week 13 of 2006 behind Jake Plummer. Again, that was like a good team, you know, that, that, that was a much better team than you would expect someone getting a rookie quarterback. So I don't think it's that sign bad of a sign for Jake Cutler to be behind Plummer uh, in that circumstance. And it's 2006. So it was a while ago. 
Lamar Jackson didn't start until week 11 and Jared Goff didn't start until week 11. Much worse situation for Goff because he was behind Case Keenum. It was a losing team and he really just did not look good when he came in. I mean, they lost seven straight games and he had one of the worst rookie seasons we've seen until Josh Rosen decided to say, hold my beer and really put up one of the worst seasons we've ever seen. Uh, Jackson behind Joe Flacco. I mean, Flacco for, he's a bottom quarterback. I mean, let's look at Flacco in 2018. Let's look at those numbers for him. Um, how bad was Flacco or good was Flacco, but it was a team that was competing, right? So I think that's, it was hard probably to take him out. Flacco, oh, Flacco's not that bad. He was 15th in EPA per play in 20, uh, in 2018. So it's reasonable that they hung on to him. Not, not that bad of a sign for Lamar Jackson. Um, and then Dwayne Haskins behind Case Keenum also. Case Keenum's a guy who's gotten usurped twice on here. He was not until week nine. Again, bad side, bad, bad team. Uh, Josh Freeman took until week nine to replace Byron Leftwich. Byron Leftwich is pretty legit, so not that bad of a sign. Tua, not until week eight to replace Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick was, was awesome. I mean, there's arguments that they shouldn't have even made the move there. I think it's okay to find out what you have at rookie when you're just not going to win a championship. So I'm not going to go against it too much there. And then so on and so forth. I, I'm not going to go through every single one of these, but you can look at some of these examples and say the coaches being risk conserve, um, risk averse probably hurt the chances that year to potentially do something. Uh, the biggest examples there is Justin Herbert, right? He started week two, but he wouldn't have even started if it wasn't for the fact that uh, Terod Taylor, again, someone who's been usurped twice on here, um, wasn't for the fact that he had that punctured lung off of the injection gone wrong. You know, Herbert could have been someone who was getting reps earlier, who was being prepped and ready to play. He came in and played extremely well right from the get-go. Now, would they have been a playoff team and competing and all that, if he had gotten those extra reps, probably not. So it's not the end of the world, but it seems like a bad decision to say, go with, with, with Terod Taylor there rather than, rather than Herbert. And then the other guy is also another Terod Taylor guy. And that's Baker Mayfield. Baker did not start until week four of 2018 week three, 2018 is when he came in for Terod Taylor. And again, this was something that was, he, he was going to replace Taylor, I think pretty soon anyway, but the impetus for that against the Jets on Thursday night was the fact that Taylor um, got tackled out of bounds. I'm not sure if it was an ankle injury or a leg injury of some sort, but he got injured. And that's why Baker Mayfield had to come in. They continued the rest of the season to finish um, 500. Uh, well, actually, I think it was six, seven and one to, to finish the season. So they could have, you know, maybe not made the playoffs, but they could have given more reps to Baker. He could have been getting those first team reps, those first few weeks. They, they had some really close games and the defense was playing well to start the season that they could have won if they went to him earlier. Now there've been disasters. Like when Paxton Lynch came in, in week five for the Broncos, and then had to get, had uh, eventually was, was sat down there. Like I said, Tua didn't do that well. So there are some bad situations there. Um, Brandon Whedon starting week one back all the way back in 2012. That didn't go so hot. EJ Manuel, not so great also. So there, there are definitely some bad situations there, but generally I think teams are being too risk conservative as we see across the board. They're worrying a lot about their job. And I think directionally they're scared of going back and forth at quarterback. And they want to say, let's put in the veteran first and we can make that veteran two rookie move when I'm hundred percent sure we will not have to go back. And I'm 100% sure this is not imperiling our chances to win the playoffs. That is a mistake, in my opinion, for 
the development of the quarterback, unless you really think that they're going to get themselves injured. But we've seen time and time again, especially with mobile quarterbacks, that they're able to perform pretty well um, as rookies as far as avoiding pressure, right? So unless that is a huge factor digging into it, and unless you really have solid, solid quarterback play that you're certain of, and you think the team around them is good enough to get that veteran mid-level quarterback to the Super Bowl, those are two circumstances I could see resting the rookie. But other than that, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a great idea, and I would be against it. And we'll see what these teams uh, end up deciding this year, wh- what they're going to do. Um, I think for fields, I think it's okay if you don't start him initially, but if it goes beyond a couple of weeks, beyond a few weeks, that should be a problem and something that needs to be explored. All right, uh, this is a new segment here where I'm going to talk about Underdog. And Underdog Fantasy is a new sponsor for this podcast. So let me just tell you here that right off the bat, Underdog Fantasy, $10 deposit, use promo code PFF, get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That'll include all the articles that I'm about to talk about that talk about these breakout, potential breakout wide receivers. Promo code PFF at Underdog Fantasy, which is my favorite place to play to play best ball right now. So I have a series of articles on PFF, which talks about the... Uh, that looks into the second year wide receivers goes through their 10 most similar players from this 15 year period of PFF data. It matches them based upon their draft position, how big they were, how productive they were in college, how productive they were in the pros, how many routes they ran per game in the pros, like their usage, uh, how many fantasy points per game they had as rookies. And then how many top 24 weeks they had. So how many times they're getting into being a usable fantasy player as a rookie matches all those together, finds the most similar players, looks at what those players did in their second season. And then that gives us an idea of a range of outcomes for these rookies. So, so far I've gone through most, I think I've gone through all the way through the second round. So the guys that I probably don't need to cover here, Justin Jefferson, I mean, incredible player, incredible rookie year. If you look at his comps, uh, Odell Beckham Jr. is his closest comp than AJ Green, Amari Cooper, uh, Justin Blackman, who had a was playing pretty well as a second year before he got suspended and then booted out of the league. Calvin Ridley, Sammy Watkins, all these guys, Julio Jones. So good, 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 great, great, great. Uh, so you probably don't need to talk about him too much. And the rest of these guys are not going to be as highly ranked as Jefferson, who's seen as, you know, let me see, what, what is Jefferson's ADP right now? Jefferson's ADP, it looks like it is, it looks like he is going in the top 10 wide receivers right now. So he is way up there. Uh, wide receiver seven right now. So yeah, we, we don't, we don't need to worry about whether or not he's going to break out. That's kind of baked into the, the price. Jerry Judy. Now Jerry Judy is someone I like, and especially as an underdog pick because he's on a team with Cortland Sutton with uh, KJ Hamler, who also played well last year with Noah Fant at tight end. So it could be a little bit dicey as far as when he's going to get the ball. But again, if you look at his comps, he has some, some duds like Corey Coleman in there. But he also has Mike Wallace, who had a great second season. Greg Jennings, who came on for many years there. He has Will Fuller in there, Santonio Holmes. Anthony Gonzalez, who played with Peyton Manning, so that helps. 
Jerry Judy is not going to quite have Peyton Manning level play here when he's playing with Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, let me see who else we have in here. Torrey Smith, Devontae Parker. So he's got some decent names in there, some guys who finished in, in the top 20. And right now, Jerry Judy is going at wide receiver 35. So there's, there's definitely a, a place to, to look, for, look for him there, uh, I would say. So the next guy here i think cd lamb looks strong but my concern with lamb is that i think he's just going a little bit too high because if you compare his comps and he has some great comps don't get me wrong he has uh beckham in there although he didn't perform nearly as well as beckham did as a rookie right it's not really close but because beckham averaged about 25 ppr points per game as a rookie and lamb was around 13 so it's not really close but he is in there but the other guys leave you a little bit concerned and i think the low rookie average depth of target the low a dot and that's one of the inputs into this model he's only 10.3 yards so then you end up picking up comps like jordan matthews and that i think hurts a little bit of his projection despite the fact that matthews was actually decent as his second year he hit top 20 and other comps that he has sterling shepherd is not that great necessarily uh, Hakeem Nix, who actually ended up being a top eight guy, but he really started to stretch the field in the second season. And I'm not sure that Lamb as a slot guy is going to do that as much. Uh, T.Y. Hilton, again, somebody who was way down the field, despite the fact that he only had 12.3 a, a yard a dot as a rookie, not really a comparable player. Um, the thing that worries me about Lamb is wide receiver. He's wide receiver 14 in our rankings and his ADP is wide receiver 12, you know, whoa, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's steep. Um, Cause he's not nearly as impressive as someone like Justin Jefferson. Well, and Justin Jefferson is going at wide receiver seven versus 12, but you know, in a somewhat crowded receiving field, at least for the wide receivers there with Amari Cooper and uh, Michael Gallup, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think the thing about Lamb, what people are focused on is the fact that while the average 13 PPR points per game over the season, he was up above 17 per game when Dak was there to start the season. And yeah, that's a possibility that he's going to get, you know, a lot better numbers for an entire season with Dak being there the entire season. But they were also passing at an unsustainable level because they were trailing in all those different games there. So I don't think they're going to be passing quite as much this season. So I would say caution for, for CeeDee Lamb. Uh, Jalen Rager, he actually has some okay comps like Alshon Jeffrey in here. Um, but others, he has Chris Godwin, who actually didn't really break out until his third season. But some of these other guys are not quite as hot. I mean, the best performers were were Jeffrey, Michael Floyd performed okay, and Corey Davis was okay in his second year. So not great, but Rager is not going into wide receiver 61. So I think I like him at that price right now, especially when everyone's assuming a low volume for that offense. Uh, Brandon Ayuk, he looks a lot better than I thought that he was going to look in this analysis. And I guess I should have been thinking he was going to be better because he is being drafted fairly high. He's going as wide receiver 27, which is the same as our rankings. But my projections that we do for PFF, the projections that I do the shares for, are a little bit less optimistic at wide receiver 44, 
Um, I've given 20% of the team's targets, but it's just hard when you're going to have a rookie playing quite a bit there at quarterback and you have George Kittle, you have Debo Samuel also in there uh, taking up some space there. So I would say he's probably a little bit more on the fade side for me also. Um, now I like T Higgins a lot and I think Higgins people are off of Higgins because of Jamar Chase coming in there, but Higgins is a guy who straight up just looks like a stud when it comes to what he did as a rookie. I mean, he was up around 13 PPR points per game. So he was pretty close to CD lamb, right? Close to CD lamb also has a crowded wide receiver core. I would say maybe a little bit less crowded, at least no presumed like alpha number one, unless people think Jamar chase is for sure going to step in and be number one. Uh, but his ADP is wide receiver 26. So he's really giving you some, some more value there. I uh, think about the comps for Higgins because he's a little bit bigger bodied guy. He gets Dwayne Bow, he gets DK Metcalf, he gets AJ Brown, he gets Mike Evans, Terry McLaurin, who's on the smaller side, Josh Gordon. So he's getting some big, big name guys here. 12.9 A dot as a rookie. So he wasn't this underneath guy. Six top 24 weeks, despite the fact that 40% of his targets came from Brandon Allen and Ryan Finley last year. He's going to have the whole season with Joe Burrow this year. He has a connection with Burrow, and he was really, really good. I think he's someone who's being slept on. Um, as having a higher than you'd expect chance. I mean, he's really like equals CeeDee Lamb in every single way or beats him in a lot of different measures. Yet, like I said, he's going back at wide receiver 26 as opposed to Lamb, who was, where did I say Lamb was again? Wide receiver 12, um, wide, receiver, wide receiver 14. So uh, 28 versus 14. And that's a massive difference when we're talking about the type of, players that your opportunity cost is for and whether running back quarterbacks tight ends up in that up in that sort of range okay so next here uh, i'm just going to give up one guy out of the lower guys that i like and that is chase claypool now claypool doesn't have that low of an adp i think it is wide receiver 29 but when i looked into his numbers i mean they're good for the entire season Again, he has numbers that are just as good as C.D. Lambs with lower usage. And I think there are quarterback concerns where we're assuming the worst for quarterback play where that won't necessarily happen. We're assuming the worst as far as usage is concerned. But I think he can really take over for James Washington. And I know Juju Smith-Schuster is coming back. I know Deontay Johnson is there. But Claypool's a diff- on a different level. He's on a different level than those guys as far as what his potential is this, this, uh, this year coming up. And I also think if you rearranged his season and you put – the beginning of the season, right? The first th- through the first five games of the season, he was averaging more than 75 yards, 1.2 touchdowns per game. The touchdowns are not going to be maintained, obviously. And he wasn't even running 20 routes a game. So he was averaging 3.5 yards per route run, which is off the charts good. And then he slowed down after that. And his target volume, though, increased up to 7.7 per game versus only 4.8 when he was putting up those huge numbers. So he went from drawing comparisons to Calvin Johnson to now being someone who is being taken, I think, as the fifth second-year receiver off of the board. Claypool is going after Ayuk, after Higgins, after Lamb, of course, um, after Jefferson, all those guys. So I think he has a ton, ton of upside, and he would be a guy that I would look at and I would play. And again, if you're going to play, play with our guys uh, at Underdog Fantasy, $10 deposit, at least if you deposit 10 or more, Promo code PFF, free PFF Edge annual subscription to get all of my content and everyone else's content out there. And I'm hoping that you guys can take advantage of that. 
All right, next topic here is situational aggression. So I found some pretty interesting trends in the NFL that I want to discuss here because, okay, I'll also step back for a second. It came from a podcast where Deontay Lee of PFF, he's a defensive defensive coach. He was on the Robert Mays uh, football podcast, football show with uh, The Athletic, which is a great show. Uh, I recommend, I recommend uh, to listen there if you have time, which is in the off season, we have a little bit more time. And they were talking about scheme innovations within the NFL. And one of the things that Deontay was mentioning and was being echoed by the other guys on the podcast is that with the shift away from some of the cover three, where they're just giving you the flat and saying, we're going to give you that sort of thing. Now they're doing more where they're forcing some offenses to push the ball down the field a little bit more, get comfortable throwing it into windows. And that stuck out to me because of the fact that overall in the NFL, the trend when it comes to average depth of target has continued to decline year after year after year. So what you're seeing is, this has been a trend for a long time in the NFL, uh, you know, for a couple of decades, is that the average depth of target goes down, but yards per reception is not going down as much because you're getting a higher percentage contribution to yards after the catch and your yards per pass attempt or per target, however you want to frame it is going up because completion percentage is going up. So you're not throwing as far down the field. Your yards per reception is not going up, but you're completing passes more often, which makes you more efficient because the real denominator that we care about is your currency on the football field. And that was a play, right? And a drive, like how many, you want to figure out how much you're using, how efficient you're being with each play that you're using. So with that in mind, the talk about a potential to increase aggression didn't really jibe with the idea that these numbers have been going down over time. Uh, So I looked at the overall trends. And I said, okay, overall trends, let's look at, let's look at what's going on in the NFL. So looking at this 15 year period that I talk about a lot, because that's what our data has from 2006 to 2020, the average depth of target has gone down from about 9.2 yards to about 8.7. Okay. So it's gone down about half a yard over those 15 years. And while the decline, if you take each year, it's not a perfect slope down, but if you smooth it out, it is a pretty steady slope. And if anything, it's been accelerating in the last few years going down. So what I wanted to do is I said, how can we figure out about this situational awareness, right? And, and teams being more aggressive because it's kind of been my thought for a while that we lose context with things like how many interceptions did someone throw in light of the fact that every interception is not equal. They show up on the stat sheet as being equal when you talk about your traditional stats, but the loss of value on a particular play is not equal. So there are two components when we're talking about expected points added, right? There are two components. There are two factors. One is the offense. When you, so the offense A has the ball. What are their expected points 
that they're going to, what's the expected points on that drive? Do they have positive expected points, which they're probably going to have if they have the ball, unless they're in a horrible situation, like third and 20 at their own two. Um, so they, so they have ex- expected points they have before the play. Then there's the next play and the expected points before that play, you subtract one from the other. That's when you calculate on that play, how much value was added, how many expected points were added. So for interceptions, the same exact interception, let's forget down in distance, right? So the same exact ball picked off on the same exact yard line, tackled and down switch of possession on the same exact yard line. That play is not the same value for every time that it happens. Now, the second part of the equation we talked about is the same. The expected points now after the play is over is the same. Whether you throw an interception on first and 10 or you throw an interception on third and 15, it's all the same. Whether you throw it from your own 10-yard line or from further down and they, and they run the ball back to the same yard line. It's all the same if the team takes over possession the defense takes over the ball and takes over possession on the same yard line post interception, their expected points are the same. Now the starting point is what's different and what determines the value on an interception. If it's first and 10 and you have, let's say 2.5 expected points going into that play, you throw an interception versus it's third and 15 and you have zero expected points on that possession and you throw an interception, well, guess what? That first interception is 2.5 points worse than the second interception because of the advantageous situation that you gave away. So that type of thinking, which I don't think happens enough in the NFL, certainly doesn't happen enough for, for fans. Like they'll look at how ugly an interception is versus how valuable an interception is. And they'll, they'll rely more upon that where you should as a quarterback, as an offense, be adjusting how you're playing more based upon that expected points before that play, right? So to bring it back into the situational aggressiveness, I have found that teams are being better about situational aggressiveness, especially when we look at average depth of target. While I mentioned the overall trend for the league is going down from 2006 to 2020, it's really highly related to how much has been going down in the most advantageous situation. So I divided EPA into different quartiles for when, it, when an offense has the ball. So I took the bottom 25% of any, I'm sorry, not EPA, for expected points before the play. So I took the bottom 25% for expected points before a play, the next 25 up to 50, the next 25 up to 75, and then the 75 up to 100. So I'm going to look at those four different quartiles in this analysis. So to give you an idea of what these represent, um, in the bottom quartile, if you're at a bottom quartile expected point situation, about 60% of those plays are coming on third down. And they're generally longer, of course, because you're in a worse situation. Whereas if you're in the the top quartile, only 6% of those plays are coming on third down and 62% of them are coming on first down. So you're in a more advantageous situation there. So when I looked at those, that, those top quartile plays, that's what's really driving the decline in average depth of target over time because teams are just being much, much, much more conservative. Back in 2006, teams were the most aggressive throwing the ball down the field. The dot was nearly 10, which was much higher than the average, which was around, like I said, 9.2, something like that. 
they were really chucking the ball down the field, presumably as part of, you know, play action, first and 10, maybe second and one type of situations where that's a very advantageous EPA situation uh, or EP situation. They were throwing the ball down the field a lot. Now that's dropped all the way down where it's down to about 8.6. So it's taken a huge decline. And if you look at the other quartiles, what's interesting is the next one. So the 50th to 75th, so good, but not great situations. Those have declined steadily in, in, in a similar manner, although a little bit more aggressively than overall. Um, the next one where the 25th to 50th quartile, so bad, but not awful situations, those have declined, but not as much, which I think is good. And I'm going to talk more about this quartile later. Um, but the lowest one, the zero to 25% quartile, that has flipped. It's the opposite. Teams are being more aggressive in these situations, which they should be. The A dot in those situations has gone on a smooth track, has gone from around 9.1. So it was lower than the overall A dot, lower in these bad situations. It's gone all the way up now to about 9.7%. So it's gone way up where every other situation, situationally, teams have been going down and throwing it lower, which is great. Teams are recognizing now, especially in these last few years, there are some huge numbers we've seen in 2016, uh, 17, 18, and 19. All of these things are above like 9.5, way, way above the average ADOT. We're seeing teams be more and more aggressive in those situations. I think they're starting to understand that when you're in a poor situation to start off with, getting turning over the ball is not much worse than punting the ball in these situations. You're likely going to have to punt anyway. So let's take some risk and let's really try to flip things to our favor and get that huge gain of EPA by picking up the first down, as opposed to mitigating some of the EPA loss by dumping it off on a screen pass and then having to punt anyway. Um, if you look at interception percentage, what I think is another good way of looking at aggressiveness Interception rate has gone down no matter which quartile we're talking about here. But we have seen in the last few years in that bottom quartile, again, the interception rate is flat or starting to go up a little bit. So, so teams are willing to throw more interceptions in those situations when everything else is going down. So I think that is fantastic. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is maybe the next phase for the NFL is in that second quartile in the bad but not awful situations. Those are near the bottom as far as a dot is concerned. So in a logical rank ordering, you figure you'd have the highest a dot in the worst situations. And then next would be the second worst situations, but they're actually down at the bottom. So I like to see that tick up a bit. And I think maybe teams will be a little bit more aggressive when they're in second and long situations, when they're in third and medium situations where they're not just trying to play it out and, and stay on schedule right? And instead, they're trying to be more explosive in those situations where you have a little bit lower expected points, but you're not all the way down at the bottom that you're seeing in those lower quartile discussions. But I thought this was really interesting here because breaking up the data shows that an overall trend for the NFL, which is less aggression, lower a dot. In fact, when you break it up by this, by the starting point, by your situation going into a play, Teams are becoming more aggressive in the right circumstances. Teams are getting smarter. And I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that even in the future. All right, it's ad time again. Let me just tell you about Western and Southern. For those who do not know, have not been listening to this podcast, 
In these uncertain times, life is full of questions. Like when should you get life insurance? That's something that I decided to go ahead and make a purchase on in the last couple of years. But however difficult these questions can be, Western and Southern can help you answer them, backed by 130 years of experience. Together, we can look ahead and leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. This is a compensated endorser. Products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right. So the next point here, and for this is a new segment. I'm going to go with here. I know maybe going a little bit long here, but I actually have some good stuff, uh, believe it or not. So the new segment that we're going to talk about here, and I'm calling it back to school. And with that, I mean, we're going to talk about some statistical concepts that you can apply to, to fantasy football. And for that, I have our, my, my new back to school intro, which hopefully you'll like. That's what I call marine biology. <laughs> now, for those who don't know, that's a clip from uh, 1986 classic with Rodney Dangerfield, Back to School. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen that, I would suggest you go because there, <laughs> it really is a fantastic movie. Although, caveat, I have not seen this movie in probably 25 years, um, if not longer. So could be problematic. In today's, in today's time. So I'm not going to recommend it too much, but I remember that's being a movie I watched quite a few times here. So the back to school segment I have is going to discuss a topic called Simpsons Paradox. Now, before you guys fall asleep, I'm going to relate this to some statistics in the NFL and also fantasy football specifically where I, where I see this a lot. So let me just explain what Simpsons Paradox is, and I'll talk about how it came to my attention and how you can use it in your analysis. So Simpsons Paradox, the definition is a statistical phenomenon where an association between two variables in a population emerges, disappears, or reverses when the population is divided into subpopulations. So in English, I'll tell you what, what that means uh, with an example. So there was a post where someone was making fun of a Bloomberg article that said that the dream of home, home ownership is dead. Now, was that hyperbole? Of course. But they were kind of dunking on this uh, on Twitter for by posting a trend line of the percent of Americans who own a home over 50 years. And you see very flat trend line hasn't really gone down much at all over the last several years. And that was meant to imply, hey, there isn't a homeownership's not dead. It's as strong as it's ever been. But immediately when I saw this, I knew that this was an example of Simpsons paradox because, again, they talk about here if you, div you divide up a population into subpopulations. So I found a lot of data on this where you, if you divide home ownership rate by age cohort, what you see is that for all the different age cohorts, they had, let's say, 25 to 35, 35 to 45, 45 to 55, 55 to 65, and then 65 plus. For all of those different cohorts, the only one that had increasing home ownership percentage was 65 plus. And every other age cohort was declining. Now, overall, the reason that the trend line is flat is because we're an aging country. 
So the mix of the population over time has shifted much, much more so towards those 65 and older people. And they have higher owner, home ownership than ever because they're coming from more and more of a middle-class background. When they came through America, when home ownership really was <laughs> not only not dead, but was, was, was a dream for a lot of these people that they were able to realize with lower payments and then now into retirement with a strong foundation, at least for now, on Social Security, with pensions that a lot of people are not going to have in the future, also for their jobs they have high, high home ownership. But every other uh, cohort, including the 55 to 65 year olds, but especially the younger people, that number is going down. So that showed how the deception and looking at everything together and really the point of what they were saying where home, home ownership being dead is really, the dream of that is really for the younger people, right? And the, the data actually proves that out if you divide up the population. Now, how this applies to Football, I think, is there are lots of stats that when you disaggregate them, you can get a better idea of what's going on. And one of my pet peeves, a stat that, believe it or not, is even included now on a site like Football Reference, is yards per touch. Specifically, we're talking about running backs here because those are the ones you're going to care about, right? You're not going to care about yards per touch for wide receivers because they're not rushing the ball. So it's combining receiving and rushing into one statistic. And it's supposed to give us some idea of how efficient a player is, how explosive a player is, comparisons between players. But in reality, it is extremely deceptive combining these two variables together. Let me give you an example of why. Okay, let's look at, I picked two, two examples of, of different types of players. Let's look at James White and let's look at David Johnson from 2020. So James White in yards per touch averaged 5.9 yards per touch last year. David Johnson averaged 5.6. So by this measure, you would say James White is being more productive with his touches than David Johnson is or was last season. But when you dig into the subpopulations, the subcomponents here, and you strip out rushing and receiving, you look at those separately, for yards per carry, James White was 3.5 yards per carry. David Johnson was 4.7. For, for yards per reception, James White was 7.7. David Johnson was 9.5. So David Johnson, more yards per carry than James White, significantly. More yards per reception than James White, significantly, yet a lower yards per touch. And why is that? Well, it's the mix of their touches. James White had 35 rushes and 49 catches last year. So about 42% of his touches were rushes. David Johnson had 147 rush attempts and, only, and 43 catches, so 77% of his touches were rushes. And that explains the difference. You have David Johnson, who's more efficient in everything that he does, but yet he shows up as being less efficient in yards per touch because of how this thing gets conflated. So I think this is also important. And it goes back to also what I was talking about for quarterbacks and pressure numbers that we saw earlier this year. 
you know, there can be different mixes with what, with the, what those numbers have. There can be different mixes with how different teams are playing based upon their, their scheme, their situations that players are being used. But this in particular is a, is a great example of the deception that comes from yards per touch where you're not accounting for how the mix of touches plays. And just for one more thing on this, um, I'll just say generally, I'm also not a fan of yards per touch because at least make it targets instead of touches when we're talking about receptions, because you're using a play, a down, like I said, the the currency of an offense for one rushing attempt for one catch, you might be using 1.2 downs, 1.3 downs, because you're not catching every pass, right? So there are targets that are not being caught even by running backs who have 85% catch rate. Uh, So it's really not comparable to show that at least use yards per target as the component that we're looking at for running backs, as opposed to um, conflating receptions with rushing attempts where one is using more than one down. The, the receptions require more than one down usage and, and are using more value, more of your offensive currency. All right. So last thing we're talking about today, and this is back, I will say by popular demand, but I don't know if there's popular demand, but we are going to do a quick stick to sports segment. And let, well, let me make sure I can fire up the, uh, the volume on here. Kind of messed that up. All right. So again, a quick stick to sports segment. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Okay. So our stick to sports segment today, and luckily we got some content from our man, Mike Florio over at Pro Football Talk. And he had a a tweet today and here's what is here's what his tweet said i'm gonna read it out to you he said why are many of the people who are very concerned about pro player rights when it comes to the vaccine decision completely unconcerned about college player rights when it comes to the question of being fairly compensated now technically i am kind of sticking to sports here but this has applications far beyond sports that's why i want to talk about it so what florio fell into here and I'm going to coin this term now. It might be out there, or an analogous term may, might be out there. This is not the most unintuitive idea, so I'm sure someone has come up with this. But I'm going to call Florio falling deeply into what I'm going to call the hypocrisy trap on this one, because he's talking about a situation. Obviously, we had Cole Beasley last week who was making statements where he was saying, "Why isn't the Players Association, the NFL, sticking up for us?" players who don't want to be vaccinated and having these protocols be so difficult, which are going to make our lives hell, which are going to, we're going to have to be tested all the time. We're not going to be able to hang out with our teammates. We're going to go on the road and be stuck in our hotel room, all those different things. Um, so he, he was complaining there. And of course, Florio would be like, he, he's, he's kind of, he was, he was against Cole Beasley saying those things. And then recently we had a decision at the Supreme court saying that players should be compensated for their labor. I'm not a Supreme Court scholar, so I'm not going to go into everything that happened, but that's the basic gist of it. So he's saying, why are some people on one side of one issue, but on another side of another issue? Now, the reason Florio is falling into the hypocrisy trap here is because, guess what? You cannot point out that someone else is being a hypocrite by saying they don't believe in A, but they believe in B. If you yourself do not believe in A, but believe in B. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but 
The point is, if you're on the opposite side of both issues of someone else, then you yourself, by your definition, if, if you're saying these, these are issues are the same principle is at play here. Now, I would say the same principle is not at play. So that's the big mistake. But if you're trying to gotcha someone on hypocrisy saying, hey, how come the principle on principle A you don't have on principle B, but you flip your opinions on those two different issues, you're not following the same principle. If you believe that pro-player rights when it comes to COVID testing and not being vaccinated is the same principle as college players' rights of getting paid, and you believe college players should get paid, and you don't believe that player that, that pro players should have rights, should have same more rights when it comes to being unvaccinated, then you're being a hypocrite. You can't call someone else a hypocrite for that when you don't believe those two things. Now, the real problem here is like I'm saying is I don't believe that these are equal principled stances. I do not believe whether or not someone is compensated for their labor is the same thing as whether or not someone is inconvenienced for not getting vaccinated, primarily because I think the, the thing that's lost in some of this Cole Beasley discussion, and I don't want to like, I, I'm, I'm much more like, let's not pile on someone like Cole, Cole Beasley, quite honestly, because honest, it doesn't help according to the research of getting people to change. But I would say that the mistake in that thinking, uh, the mistake that you think that your rights are being abridged is the Players Association is out there to look out for all the players, not just every individual player, what they want to do. And you can make a very compelling argument that by pushing players with these protocols to get vaccinated, they are protecting their players, not only those individual players. I'm not saying they're protecting those players, say, you should know better. And we're going to, we know better than you, what you should do with your body. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're protecting the other players who, while vaccinated, can still get sick, can still miss games because, because they, because they get COVID. Like you can still get COVID, right? Um, You're not going to get nearly as sick you can still pass it on to a family member and so on. So they're actually trying to protect their players. So I think that's why there's a principle, a different principle at, at play here. And plus compensation versus COVID protocols is, is a whole different thing. So that's just a quick word of advice. If you find yourself out there, no matter what the genre may, may be, uh, falling into this hypocrisy, pointing out hypocrisy of others, don't fall into the hypocrisy trap, which is you pointing out someone else's hypocrisy based on two issues, but you have the opposite opinion on both of those issues because then you also are being a hypocrite. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Go ahead, rate, review the pod on iTunes. I've seen some reviews come in there, so I appreciate it. I really thank everyone for listening in. I see the numbers are starting to go up recently. So hopefully you enjoy these solo data and information heavy pods, but I will also try to get more interviews in the future. Thanks so much. Have a great week and I'll be talking at you next week. Thanks. Thanks.